The reading is on page 1824 of the Church Bibles. Um, it's chapter 1, starts at uh, verse 27, life worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as for the faith of the gospel, as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, chapter 2, Imitating Christ's Humility. <clears throat> Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish amb ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus 
to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we meet uh, today in fellowship with you, and we're glad to do so, and in fellowship with you because of your son, and we meet in fellowship with him because of his spirit, whom he gives us as well, and we meet in fellowship and partnership with each other, and it's tremendous to read of the partnership, the fellowship enjoyed by Paul and the Philippian Christians, and we pray that you'd open our minds Um, so that their experience and the teaching that Paul gives them would be instructive to us um, as we strive to be your people here. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, living in the hills, of course, you'll know just how dark the night sky can be when there's no cloud cover and there's no moon. So dark. And living in the hills, you'll know just how brightly the stars in the night sky can shine Um, in an otherwise dark sky when the sky is clear of cloud, so bright. That image of stars shining brightly in an otherwise completely black sky is the image Paul paints of how he wants us to be if we stand pure and hold out the word of life to a world which, spiritually speaking, is in darkness. Sometimes we're aware of how brightly we can shine. For 10 years, Narelle and I We're part of a beach mission team, which if you don't know is a group of 30 or 40 or 50 Christians who go to a caravan park just after Christmas and for two weeks work together in partnership and give ourselves exclusively to running evangelistic events and programs as they reach out with the news of Jesus to those holidaying at the caravan park. And every year people would be astounded and people would say, how much do you get paid for doing this? And then we'd say, we don't get paid anything. In fact, we, it costs us to come. And it blows them back. 
uh, because here is a group of people who are so energetic, so joyful, working together in unity without any squabbling, without complaining, to bring the joy of the news of Christ to the campus there. And the joy was palpable in the team, and they could see it. And so people came not just because we're offering activities for the children, but because of the immense unity in the team that they saw, the joy that was there, and it was extremely attractive, shining like stars, you see. Well, it's one thing to be away with young people on a beach mission team for a few weeks, but what about being with each other in the non-holiday times, week in, week out, for years, uh, when you cope with all the usual demands and responsibilities and potential distractions of everyday living, how can it be possible for us still to shine like stars in our universe, which is the hills, without obscuring the word of life, without putting off people by the way in which we relate to one another? In other words, how do we conduct ourselves in a way such that we also shine like stars as we hold out the word of life? That's the question. The answer has to do something with Christ because in chapter 2 we have one of the most famous passages in the New Testament about Christ and what he did. And it also has something to do with joy where Paul says in verses 17 and 18 that he experiences mutual joy with the Philippian Christians and then in chapter 2 verse 2 he tells them what they must do to make his joy complete. So this week in chapter 2 is all about Christ and joy. Last week in chapter 1 was all about partnership and joy because Paul says he always prays with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he adds that he's confident that the one who began a good work in them, in them would carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And we ask the question, well, if God's going to um, carry on that work in us, does that mean we need to do nothing? And the answer is no, because in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, what we must do is continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, keep working out what you're to do now that you are saved. Why? Verse 13, because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. In other words, he's saying you're in partnership with God. You're working for him and he's working in you. And chapter 2 now brings us to, therefore, what we must now do as people who are in partnership with God and one another. And Paul tells us when he says in the first verse chapter one of our passage, chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, in other words, whenever, whether I survive and am with you or whether I die, in prison and I can't be with you, whether I suffer with you or whether you're left to suffer alone, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in such a way that promotes the gospel not only to one another but also to outsiders. So that instead of detracting from the gospel and putting people off by the way we relate, instead you'll shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So he's saying here is how to function effectively as a church in our witness to the world. And it's very simple. He says you've got to do three things. Number one, be unified, be one. Number two, be humble. And thirdly, don't grumble. Be one, be humble, don't grumble. Do this, he says, you'll shine. 
And then he gives two real-life examples to make it very concrete and real. First of all, be one, be unified. Chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul speaks of them conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, and maintaining this unity even though they're enduring hardship for Christ. Because remaining unified under pressure in the face of suffering... Well, that shows what's really what we're like on the inside. You know, it's all very well to pretend to be unified when things are going well. But actually, when the cracks show, then what's inside comes out. And he says, if you stand as one, you'll show that God's working in you. And this will be a sign to others that they'll be destroyed, but you'll be saved. Now, of course, few of us really suffer for Christ, but... but if we don't hide our Christianity under a barrel, if we live as Christians, we will know the condescension that sometimes comes our way, the sneers, the look of disgust or disapproval or even hostility by people who have an axe to grind with Christians. And it can be tempting to think that God is not good enough or powerful enough to stop our suffering. But Paul puts it differently in verse 29, that those who are experiencing such suffering for Christ, this is in fact a gift from God. He says it's been granted to you, literally it's been gifted to you, it's been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. We think, how can that possibly be a gift? Well, he says, well, if Christ suffered for us, we'll suffer for him. How's that a gift? Because when we do suffer for him for no other reason than that we believe in Jesus, when that happens, you go through something, a, a small taste of what Jesus himself went through, the rejection he bore, you bear. And in that, there is fellowship with our Lord. That, there's a oneness you experience with him. You know... He went through what you've been through. You bear his sufferings. And there is a fellowship in that and strangely, a kind of joy. Well, if we're going to be a church which shines for Christ in the hills, we're going to have to keep looking outward beyond ourselves. We're going to have to work together. We're going to have to do the work of evangelism together. We're going to have to ramp this up. And uh, we'll look forward to doing that. But when we do it, some of us are going to suffer for Christ and we have to be unified. That's the first point, be unified. To do so is to have conduct worthy of the gospel, to stand as one. Well, how is it possible to be unified when we're part of an imperfect church full of imperfect people running imperfect programs and events, which all could be done better, which are led by imperfect leaders, none of whom are omniscient, none of whom can anticipate all the needs of everyone in the church, um, and everyone, of, from God's point of view, is a sinner who's saved, but they're still sinners and very much a work in progress. How do you be unified with a group like that? Well, the answer is, second point, by being humble. Chapter 2, verse 3, in humility, value others above yourselves. Be humble. And we can see the way he turns our thinking around because when he says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, now that you're completely 
satisfied by church, now that all your needs are finally being met, now that you have no reason to complain at all, now be humble. Now, he's not saying that. He flips that thinking on its head and he says, actually, if you've got any cause whatsoever to be grateful to God for his work in your life, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Be one by being humble. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is such a radical way to behave, isn't it? I have to say these verses, um, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, became something of theme verses for me last year, personally. They they were the verses that I kept coming back to again and again. Because um, I had been serving on the Trinity City team for 15 years as part of a team, and I was always under someone else. And suddenly I found myself in charge. Wow. Okay, a big church, a big church team a big budget, and I was able to make decisions. I didn't have to listen. Well, I did listen, but, you know, I had the power to make decisions instead of just deferring all the time for others. And for six months, I made decisions, and I did things, and it was great, and I felt like I'd finally landed. And then I spent the next six months getting ready to hand it over to someone else. And I had to say, for the first six months, I kept coming back to the words, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And for the next six months, I kept coming back to the words, do nothing out of vain conceit. Because there was lots of temptation to be either selfishly ambitious or vainly conceited. And these verses kept telling me I wasn't to be like that. In fact, I couldn't be like that. Now, why couldn't I? Answer, because Christ was not like that. Verse 5 said it all. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And to give us insight into his mind, and not many passages do, we see what he did, but what was going on in his mind, this tells us. To give us insight into his mind, Paul takes us through four steps that Jesus went through. The first step was incarnation, Christ becoming a man. Christ didn't begin when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. He's different to us. He existed beforehand in heaven as the eternal son of God because he was divine, being in very nature God, as fully God as is God the Father and God the Spirit. And yet, though being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage which is remarkable, isn't it? Because who has that much power? Well, no one. And yet rather he, literally, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, I can say that no one here can properly grasp how far he he stepped down from what he left By becoming one of us. No one can understand that because no one has ever been in his shoes. 
But we do know that he had been with the Father and the Spirit before the beginning of time. And in joy and fellowship, they had made the universe together. And they existed in perfect fellowship and relationship and love, selfless love. And this, we can only imagine, was totally wonderful. And you may know the hymn, And Can It Be, by Charles Wesley. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Because that's where it leads, you see. The first step leads to the second. Incarnation leads to crucifixion. Where verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Some people wear a cross. I personally have never been able to do it. Uh, please understand now that I'm not judging you if you do wear a cross, but I, I personally haven't been able to do it because to me it would be like hanging an electric chair around your neck. The cross in Roman society was shameful and to be utterly scorned. You see, back then, no one in polite Roman society would even say the word cross. Crucifixion was the most horrific method of execution devised. It was reserved only for the lowest of lows. Roman citizens could not be crucified. And it was employed as a brutal warning to other people. The victim, of course, we know, was savagely beaten, stripped naked, nailed, strung up, for all to see, dripping with blood and gore and feces. The intention was to so humiliate and degrade and to shame the victim that everyone who saw them would want to just turn their heads and be sick. That feeling of revulsion in your stomach. Now Christ, as a man who never sinned and who voluntarily gave up so much to become one of us, he then takes the second step. And he humbles himself to become obedient to the cross. And if we're wondering why, of course, come back next week because it'll all be unpacked there. But because he took step two, step three follows. Exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And the word here is super exalted. That's literally what it says. He super exalted him up. And he gave him the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is no name higher than Christ's. Christ's resurrection to life on the third day, his ascension up into heaven to the place above every other. There is no one more honored or more exalted in heaven now than Christ, so that after his exaltation, therefore necessarily comes step four, glorification. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, this hasn't completely happened yet. This is talking about what will happen on the day of Christ when he is revealed in his majesty, in all of it, and his glory, and everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. And the language comes from Isaiah 45 where God says, Before me, me every knee will bow and every tongue confess but now it's applied to Jesus. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking, you take them to Isaiah 45, 
to what God says will happen to himself. And then to Philippians 2, to what is said about Jesus. And you will show them that Jesus Christ is fully God and that they themselves will one day acknowledge it to be true. But please note, far from this moment being dishonouring to God the Father, the moment when Christ is acclaimed Lord will be to the glory of God the Father. Meaning that it is impossible to honour the Father without honouring Christ as Lord. Meaning that every religion and every person who says they honour God but don't confess Christ as Lord are tragically mistaken and misguided and misled. So to get us into Christ's mindset, Paul takes us through four steps that Christ makes. Two steps down, incarnation, crucifixion. Two steps up, exaltation, glorification. Now I want you to step back from this for a moment and think with me. If Paul's aim is to make us humble like Christ, why doesn't he just leave it at steps one and two? Why include steps three and four? Because wouldn't it have been enough to say, if Jesus, who is God, humbled himself to become, uh, to even, sorry, to death on a cross, then there's no more, more, sorry, that's more than enough reason for us to do likewise. Wouldn't he have just said that? And of course the answer is yes, but the reason Paul goes further is to help us see that in the end, God is no one's debtor. You know, God takes notice of those who humble themselves and who serve, and he will in the end honour them with Christ. In fact, that word therefore at the start of verse 9 tells us it was because Christ so humbled himself that God then lifted up and exalted him. Now, of course, Christ is ultimate in all of this. No one ever will humble themselves as much as Christ did, and so therefore no one ever will be exalted as much or more than he. But the point still stands, God honours those who lay honour aside. God lifts up the humble. This is a massive theme in the Bible. Jesus himself said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's true of Christ himself and in him, and here's the point, it will also be true of us. More of that next week when we see what's in store for us when God raises us up. So, be one, be humble, and don't grumble. Don't undermine the unity you have, don't undermine all that work of being humble by grumbling. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And Paul says, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour in vain. So he says, don't grumble. Now, what's that mean? Does that mean that we can never, ever raise an issue? What if there's good reason to complain? What if in the church there's embezzlement? What if there's an abuse of power? What if there's sexual sin? What if there's a grievance that needs resolving? 
Well, Jesus tells us what to do when there is sin that occurs. We're not to gossip about it. We're not to grumble. What we're to do is to raise it with someone. We're to show them the sin just between the two of them. And if they, two of you, if they fail to repent, then you up the stakes. You take another person with you and you keep doing so until they repent. Or if they don't, then you treat them like you would a non-Christian who needs the gospel. Well, what if it's not the case of sin? What if we just don't like the way something's being done? What, about it? what if it's more of personal preference and personality style? Can I say it's fine to raise concerns? Okay? Verse 20, Paul praises Timothy for his genuine concern for the Philippians. You can have genuine concern. That's okay. But concerns are different to complaints, aren't they? Or grumbles. Complaints are by nature selfish. Concerns are most often selfless. Not always, but most often. What if you raise a concern and it's heard of as a complaint? Now, perhaps that's happened here. I want to say, if you raise a concern with me, and I'd much rather you do it than sit on it, my promise to you is that I'm going to listen to you, or at least I'm, I'm going to really try hard to listen. It depends if it's about me. If it is about me, it's still okay to raise it, okay? I just want to say that. And as much as I'm able, I will try hard to listen, okay? That will be my promise. But what we must do is not complain or grumble. Grumbling undermines unity. Grumbling runs across Christ's humbling of himself. Grumbling looks to our own interests ahead of the interests of others. Don't grumble. Of course, we know the impact of grumbling on our witness. It dulls our brightness as stars. Who wants to see a dull star? No one wants to see a dull star. We may have the word of life. We might be holding it out, but people are not going to be drawn to that. There's grumbling. Positively, we have Christ's own example of humility, don't we? We have Paul's own example. He describes himself as being poured out like a drink offering, and we think that sounds like a terrible sacrifice. Did you know a drink offering, you can read about it in Numbers 15, is is a liquid offering poured over a more substantial offering, and it makes an aroma. You see, the the vapour comes up, and it's pleasing to God. He said, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. Actually, this is pleasing to God. There's a different way to look at things, isn't there? So you have Christ's example, Paul's example, but to make things very concrete, Paul talks, uh, points to two other examples of people who have Jesus' own mindset in their relationships with others, Timothy and Epaphroditus. First, Paul speaks of Timothy. Paul says quite simply, I've got no one else like him who shows genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone looks out to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but Timothy's different. See, ahead of his concerns about himself, what most concerns Timothy is what most concerns Jesus, and what most concerns Jesus is the welfare of his people. And so therefore, Timothy is genuinely concerned because he loves Christ, and he knows Christ is concerned for the Philippians. He's genuinely concerned about them. And he's obviously shared these concerns with Paul. That's right. It's right to share concerns. 
And there's nothing unchristlike about this. Paul says, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So that's Timothy, who looks not, at, not to his own interests, but to those of others. Then there is Epaphroditus, who Paul describes as my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Paul being in prison, you see. And yet Paul, though he's in prison and needs someone to take care of his needs, he, like showing Christ-likeness, Jesus' humility, wants to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. Because Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Epaphroditus, get this, even though he almost died by contracting some disease through risking his life to take care uh, of Paul in prison, even though that happened to him, he's really, really worried about their worry for him. So Paul says simply, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him. He's astounding. Timothy and Epaphroditus, two examples to us of real people who are like Christ in their relationships with others. They are examples to us of people who conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those who uphold unity. Those who are humble, those who don't grumble, those who shine like stars. Can you imagine being part of a church like that? Can you imagine if our church was full of Timothys and Epaphroditus's like that? And actually, you don't need to imagine too hard because there are people around like that who are extremely selfless who are extremely humble. And some of us, we have more work to do, <laughs> including myself. But that will be a church that shines, which is not distracted or railroaded by squabbling or infighting, but which is focused on holding out the word of life. And that, friends, is a church of joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may this become us. May you work in us and may we so treasure Jesus that we will put our own concerns aside and work for the concerns, your concerns, which is to hold out the word of life and the concerns of others. Help our love for one another to overflow and our love for one another to overflow not because we are inherently lovable but because of Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. May we think about each other the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen.